Welcome to the Ecom Breakthrough Podcast. Are you ready to unlock the full potential and growth in your business? You've already crossed seven figures in sales, but the challenge is knowing how to take your business to the next level. Join Josh Hadley, an eight-figure e-com business owner and investor, as he interviews highly successful business owners. Get ready, because you're going to learn specific actions you can take today to help your business reach its full potential and leave a lasting impact on the world. Welcome to the Ecom Breakthrough Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Hadley, where I interview the top business leaders in e-commerce. Previous guests include Kevin King, Stephen Pope, and Roland Frazier. Today, I'm speaking with Adam Runquist, a.k.a. Adam Heist, and we will be talking a lot about lessons learned from exiting multiple brands and the new strategies he's implementing with his new brands he's working on. This episode is brought to you by Ecom Breakthrough Consulting, where I help seven-figure companies grow to eight figures and beyond. Listen, Adam, I started my business back in 2015 and grew it to an eight-figure brand in seven years, but I made a lot of mistakes along the way that made the path of getting to eight figures really take a lot longer than it needed to. There were times where I really had a lot of self-doubt or whether my brand could actually become a, a household brand name and actually survive. Um, and also dealing with cash flow issues and trying to make sure that I had the financial acumen to manage the books and to grow the business. So to our listeners, those of you who have hit similar plateaus and want to know the next steps to take your brand to the next level, then go to ecombreakthrough.com to learn more, that's ecom with two M's. And as a special bonus to my podcast listeners, this month I'm giving away one $10,000 comprehensive business strategy audit session at no cost. All you need to do is email me at josh at ecombreakthrough.com and plead your case as to why I should choose you and your brand to work with for this month's strategy session. And if you don't win this month, don't worry, you'll be entered to win for future months to come. Today, I am super excited to introduce you all to Adam Runquist. Adam has spent nearly a decade in corporate life as a director for a Fortune 300 energy company. This eventually led to the acquisition of a physical products brand, Goal Zero, a journey that inspired him to build and sell a number of his own Amazon-centric e-com brands. Adam now runs the YouTube channel Adam Heist, FBA Masterclass, and numerous brands in the cycling niche. So with that introduction, welcome to the show, Adam. Josh, man, it's uh, it's good to be on here. Thanks for chasing me down and uh, and making this happen. Excited to chat with you, man. Hey, well, I I'm appreciative of you joining the podcast here. I know we initially met at Kevin King's Billion Dollar Seller Summit. You were speaking there. And uh, as soon as I saw you talk, obviously, I've been following your YouTube channel for a while. And once I heard you, you talk, I was like, I got to get this guy's info, see if we can... Uh, twist his arm enough to get him onto the podcast. So thanks again for, for coming on. Yeah, man. Super grateful. We got to connect there too. And uh, glad we got to parlay that into the chat today. And you were, I guess you kind of just did a world tour over what a five week period, right? You went to seller sessions in London, billion dollar seller summit. Where, where all did you go? Yeah, it was interesting, man. So I did a ton of traveling kind of in my in my college era, the typical kind of poor backpacker staying in hostels thing. So I did that for I think a couple of months um, in my junior year of college. And I've traveled, you know, here and there since then, primarily for business, you know, within the US and Canada for for personal reasons. But you know, I think a lot of why we do this is that we aren't encumbered by the typical schedule and asking your boss for PTO and hey, I can only take one week because my, you know, employees are gonna, you know, or people at my corporate job are gonna get kind of where's Adam for, for a week plus. So 
So I took a step back. I'm like, you know, it's been a minute since I've done that. And it kind of happened to align with the, the spring schedule. There was a ton of events in the Amazon space in the spring. So um, I started off in, in the UK at Seller Sessions Live. And then I had a, a in, in May and then I had a, another speaking engagement in Estonia early June which is kind of the other side of Europe. And then I had uh, the capstone uh, billion dollar seller summit where we met in Puerto Rico. And it really didn't make sense to fly. I'm in, in Utah, so it's quite a jaunt to, to get to Europe from that side of the US. So I'm like, you know, why don't I just you know, hunker down in Europe? And aside from those three venues, I kind of just let, uh, let my inspiration take me where I wanted. So I ended up going to about 12 or 13 countries, four continents uh, over five weeks. So it was, uh, it was a gauntlet, but it was a super fun way to travel. And it kind of reinvigorated that, uh, that travel bug in me. So it was super sweet. So yeah, I spent a ton of time in the UK, uh, did a five day uh, hike in Portugal. Um, my origins uh, are, are Sweden from my Swedish from my background. So I got to go to the motherland for the first time, which was cool. Um, and then went to Morocco. So hit Africa up briefly and then went to the Middle East, uh, to check out Tel Aviv. There's a ton of people in the Amazon space in, in Israel. So got to kind of reconnect there, go to a buddy's wedding, went to Dubai and then, and wrapped it up in, in Puerto Rico. So yeah, it was uh, a whirlwind tour, super, super fun and, uh, uh, interesting experience. That's amazing. Sounds absolutely incredible. <laughs> and I think, like you said, I think it's like an opportunity to kind of like recharge, right? I feel like when totally. you do take those breaks. You kind of like see life in a whole new perspective, especially when you're traveling and seeing new things. It's experiencing new things as well. And you come back with a, a new perspective, I think, to business, which is really what I want to kind of center our conversation around. You've got so much experience. Uh, you know, you you lived the corporate life, right? You were acquired. You helped acquire a business in your corporate career. And then on top of that, you then helped exit your own brands or you exited your Amazon brands. Uh, you're building new brands as well. And so I think you have you're able to kind of look back from a, a mountaintop or peak, so to speak, and look back on the journey with a new frame of reference. And so to our listeners that are all, you know, primarily seven figure sellers that are looking to kind of scale their business, they want to go to eight figures and beyond. I, I'm, I want our conversation to really focus on like, all of those strategies, things that you've learned along the way of, hey, I remember I did this, I'd probably do this differently in the future. So with that being said, Adam, you know, maybe we'll kick it off with as you exited some of your Amazon brands in the past, what are some of the things that the biggest lessons that you learned from that, that you would maybe advise other people that are either getting ready to exit or trying to scale their business um, that you would, you know, provide them with insight to say, Hey, maybe steer clear here, uh, steer clear of this, or maybe go in this direction. Yeah, it's a good question. And I can kind of answer that, um, I guess, strategically, tactically, which is probably what the, the root of the question is. But, uh, you know, the interesting thing for me has been the more philosophical question, which I'll, I'll kind of get to. I think um, on the strategic tactical side, I think, uh, especially now in, in kind of modern Amazon, you know, it used to be you could be an everything store and sell stuff across different niches to different customers. And you can still do that, I, I guess, to a certain degree. But uh, that um, kind of brand building on Amazon is harder to exit now, just as, as things have gotten a little bit more sophisticated as, as you know, the, the um, belts have tightened up a little bit in the acquisition space. So I think for me, um, starting with the end in mind, if that is your goal to exit, you've got to kind of think about, well, who would want to buy my business and why would they want to buy it? Um, so currently, I would say that folks are looking for more cohesive brands that doesn't need need to be a Nike and you don't need to have 30,000 followers on Instagram, all that stuff. But you've got to have 
a specific emotional feeling and a specific customer that you're developing your products for and that you're speaking to. And that helps solidify your position on Amazon and makes it a more tangible asset that isn't just about price, which is is important to people buying. I think the other thing that has definitely changed, you know, when I exited, you know, you could get away on the low end with about a $300,000 earnings, uh, you know, to, to 500. That was kind of a, a pretty common sweet spot for a lot of folks that were exiting. I think now the aggregators in, in private equity sellers and other folks, they want it to be, it's the same amount of work to acquire a company that's doing a million a year as it is 10 for the most part. Obviously the risk dynamics change a little bit. Um, so they're looking for minimum 500,000 EBITDA, but really it's that million plus EBITDA. So you're kind of having to build a business that's in the three plus million dollar range. So I think, you know, to start out, if you're looking to exit, you're going to want to have a business that's cohesive, um, where you've got thoughtful differentiation around both the brand and the products you're developing. So yeah, and then the second thing is, is you really need to right size your business to get as many qualified buyers to the table, right? So that's a three, $3 million plus business. So I think those are some of the, the cornerstones that folks should be building today. I think the other thing that gets lost on people is, you know, you see, especially in the space, a lot of vanity metrics, screenshots of revenue. And, you know, I did this on Prime Day and all that stuff. Um, my ACOS is this. What ultimately matters is how much money your business earns. And so you've got to have a fairly curated on emotional perspective when you're looking at your catalog and your business. And there's undoubtedly going to be SKUs that are more of a drag on your cash and your business. They just don't generate enough profit. And the multiples multiples are based on profit for, for most brands. And so I think that lends towards profitability being pragmatic and unemotional about, you know, how you want to pull the levers in your business, which products you focus on, what's actually driving profitability in your business. And then you've got to have a 12 month lens, right? Typically, you know, unless you're a hyper growth brand where you're kind of factoring in, you know, additional growth rates, sometimes you can get that as, as part of the exit experience. But most brands are going to be valued based on their history, specifically the last 12 months. And so, you know, if you don't want to think, hey, I'm going to sell my business now in two months, and then you really haven't curated the business to optimize profits over a 12 month period. So having that uh, that timeline view. So that's the answer to your pragmatic question. I think the other other thing I would say is, is uh, and, and this was lost on me a little bit. Um, which is why do you want to sell and build a business in the first place? Um, Intrinsically, it's been one of the most fulfilling experiences of my life. I kind of had that soul calling, you know, I spent longer than I wanted to, I think in corporate, but I always had that gut feeling like there was a different kind of life made for me. And it happened to be the stars aligned with points in my career and experience where I just, everything kind of aligned. I'm like, you know what? I just got to go after this thing. And the pursuit of that kind of soul calling was incredibly rewarding, but I always had numbers and outcomes as I started to kind of see things realize themselves. And I'll tell you, I thought that the exit experience and that kind of, you know, reaching the top of the hike uh, was going to be, you know, have a, have a pretty big burn after the fact and kind of change my life after. And it certainly mm-hmm. has, but I'll tell you, it lasted about a couple of days, you know, and then it's, really? you, you kind of get, you kind of get the, so what, and, um, and I've come to realize that you've got to get your, your core needs met. Like it's nice to not have to worry about money to be able to pay your mortgage. You know, if you've got a family, take care of your kids, all those things that you kind of need to have so that money isn't a stressor in your life. But once you have those things met, then you got to realize who you are as a human being and what you care about. And typically business isn't going to be that. Certainly if you've got very outcome specific external drivers that are, that are what kind of makes you happy. And I think if you don't have that lens, uh, that's not going to solve it for you. You're still going to have to look at the mirror and figure out who you are as a human being. So I think the philosophical questions are, mm-hmm. are equally important as the strategic ones when you're looking to build and uh, scale and exit a business. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree anymore. And uh, I know I've heard that numerous times, right? So many people think that, oh, my life's just going to be completely changed when I exit my business. And 
yeah, you ride that high for a couple of days and you're like, okay, now what? Right? I'm still the <laughs> yeah. same person. Like nothing's really material cha- materially changed other than what's sitting in my bank account, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, it's a lot of introspection. So I think you, you hit the nail right on the head there. So I'm interested, Adam, you're launching, you've launched a new brand, Radio, that you're public about. Um, I think you've also got a couple other brands that you're working on as well. Is that true? Yeah. So the, the business I sold was in the home goods space. So it was roughly about two years from, from actually launching the first product that I exited that. So it was a fairly quick turnaround uh, around the middle point to building that business about a year into that one. I realized, Hey, this is, I I'm freaking obsessed with the business model and I had a ton of fun building that business, but I didn't really care so much about the products or the customer. Mm. Um, I'm a pretty avid cyclist and mountain biker. That's kind of my world. I'm the customer. I understood it. So I'm like, you know, this next one I want to do, which I, I kind of did at the same time I was growing that other business. I'm like, I want to go after somebody that's me. And so I built out a, a primarily a cycling accessories business. Um, so that's been a, about three years old. So one component of my time is is kind of seeing that one through. It's about three years old, and uh, it's been a fun journey building that in a different way than I built my home goods business. And then I've had kind of a similar introspective view on, okay, hey, what's what's next for me in terms of what do I want to build next? And I've really tried to tap in, especially having the exit experience, going through some things that uh, that were achievements, like that what next question, who am I, et cetera. And you know, I, I was drawn back to my experience as a kid that first time riding a bike and the freedom that came with it, discovering who I was as a kid and, and you know, kicking out with my friends, going out for six hours. I was in the 80s where, you know, we didn't wear helmets and we, you know, our parents said, come home when the streetlights are on. But um, that emotional experience, uh, looking back, was a pretty profound thread in my life. And it certainly carried me into adulthood in, in terms of riding bikes now. So I wanted to try to innovate around that first bike for kids and really you know, galvanize that experience for other people and give them a unique brand and and product to be able to do that. And so, uh, you know, we're starting out with a a kid's balance bike, which is, you know, how how kids typically learn bikes now without training wheels. And there's a whole fleet of other stuff down the line with helmets and other accessories. So it's a bit more of a sole project, but also leaning into the experience that I've had with uh, physical products brand on the retail side, as well as on the e-com and Amazon side. Yeah, I love that. I love that you've been able to kind of merge your passions right into your businesses as well and that's you know why you exit you know in the home goods space and now you know kind of playing in a space that you're super passionate about i think that's what every entrepreneur like really aspires to do you know is try to create something around something that they truly enjoy but i'm interested to hear your perspective adam after the exits that you've had what are the strategies that you're implementing in your brands right now i know with radio the balance bike you're just about to launch onto Amazon, right? You've already been selling the cycling accessories brand on Amazon for a while. So tell me about like, what are some of the strategies that you're implementing now? You've seen the Amazon game change and it will continue to change over time. So what is it that you're actively working on? What do you see as the biggest levers that can make the biggest impact in those brands? Yeah, and I think it's a good question. It's really important to be cognizant of the channel with which you're you're deploying your products and understanding the the dynamics that are shifting. Um, I got into the game around 2019 with my own brand, so so a little bit before you. You certainly saw the early day wild west of Amazon, but there was still a, a decent amount of that going on in 2019. It was you know the rebates, giveaways, uh, you know those those kind of funnels. You could kind of get away, frankly, with somewhat mediocre products, somewhat mediocre imagery. If you understood how to rank and those tactics and keyword stuff, um, that could get you organic ranking. You could build up reviews. You've got your moat and you could kind of carry on about your business. 
Um, I think the business is much less about those alley-oops now, which is like, hey, what's the latest thing that might last three, four months um, and kind of hacking your way to, to organic ranking. Um, what's ultimately changed is, is I think the, the drive of COVID demand and, and, and the spike in e-commerce as well as physical retail getting retracted during COVID. It's forced a lot of larger players to get into the Amazon channel. They can't ignore it anymore. And I think also that professionalization of the space has brought in more sophistication. And when I say sophistication, it's not rocket science, but I would just say it's a more professional approach to selling products, developing products, et cetera. I think the other dynamic at play here is, is that, you know, there was in terms of, you know, the organic uh, first page of Amazon, there was, you know, maybe four sponsored ads, maybe a mass head ads, and then the rest was organic. Now it's significantly more taken up by ads. You've got editorial recommendations and other things that basically really, you know, unless you're the top three or four spots on organic, you're probably somewhere around the middle of the page. And so I think that's forced um, a knowledge of pay-per-click, how to understand the organic versus paid, what's driving rank, what's profitable, what's not, and and being thoughtful about that. And then I think the final kind of leg that I I think has changed, and not a lot of people like to talk about this, but it's certainly a big part of the business, which is the operational supply chain side of things. Mm. How do you do your demand planning? How are you shipping your products? What's your warehousing strategy? You've now got to go to three Amazon DCs. How do you make that cost effective on trucks? And so uh, for me, the, the main shift has been from these alley-oops, three, four-month hacks where operations were fairly simple. You could kind of get away with being 70% solid to you got to get back to foul shots. It's not rocket science, but you've got to have thoughtfully developed products that are really differentiated, that have longevity. You've got to understand your customer. You've got to speak to your customer with world-class imagery. You've got to speak to your customer in your bullets. You've got to understand very pragmatically what keywords are driving rank and what are converting You've got to really understand and dial in your pay-per-click strategy. So it's much more back to basics, but the basics matter a lot more than they used to. So with that, I would say a lot of my focus now, and Radio is a good example, which is how do I develop a bike that's different, that is hard to replicate, that takes a significant amount of technical skill to develop? You know, we've got utility patents and stuff in the line there for additional kind of a moat. But more than that, it's understanding the customer, right? Who's buying it? How do I develop my product with that in mind? What are the images that I use to help them click on the listing and ultimately convert on it? What are the keywords that really matter? Um, and frankly, getting out of the price game, I still think you know Amazon's probably always going to be a pretty price-centric game. I mean, you, you see the top three to four uh, products on, on organic search. They're probably not the best products, but they've probably been around for quite a while, have reviews, and they're frankly just really thin margin, low price products. If you don't want to play that game and most can't and most frankly, it's just an uninteresting game to play, you then got to understand, well, why would somebody buy my product? And, and that's where I think that emotional experience, that brand building, um, finding out ways to convert with a higher price product, maybe around the middle of search and how do you make the economics of that work um, and, and kind of having that in mind. So, so that's been a shift. And then I, I, th- I certainly think given the pay-per-click complexities and how significant that is as a cost to the overall business, I think most people's Product cost is probably the biggest one, 25, 30% of their cost. But right yeah. behind that is going to be, you know, 15-ish percent uh, on Amazon spend. So how do you do that efficiently? How do you do that effectively? And what are some cost arbitrage ways to get the clicks, views, and conversions that don't rely on Amazon? And that's really where the external traffic strategies and some influencer stuff comes in. So really putting my back into that a lot more uh, in addition to companioning that with uh, kind of efficient, thoughtful pay-per-click. Yeah, I think what you just talked about there, you eloquently laid out everything well in terms of like everything that an Amazon seller needs to be thinking about. And I think that long gone are the days of the 
the quick win hacks that you can just ride the, you know, wave for the next couple months and then be having to look for something else in the meantime. Uh, what you talked about, though, is kind of that professionalization that has happened in the Amazon space. And I think that is the biggest like mindset shift that a lot of the Amazon sellers that are currently just like solo entrepreneurs right now kind of need to have is they're going to be fighting up against teams and large corporations that have dedicated, you know, marketing agencies and and PPC, you know, specialists that are laser focusing in on their PPC strategies. They've got creative teams, right? They have like entire creative directors that are responsible for the way all of the images look on Amazon, developing the A plus content in addition to the storefront. So there is so much to really like focus on on Amazon. So my question to you, Adam, would be like, if you have a solo entrepreneur, right, and maybe a couple uh, virtual assistants that are helping them, where would you recommend that they start in terms of like trying to professionalize their own brand? Yeah, I think there's there's probably three different areas. I think the first is product development, and I think this is probably the one that's least talked about, but going to become much more more critical. Again, if you kind of you know rewind two, three, five years, whatever your number is, you could basically white label a product for the most part. Now you might find a unique manufacturer, a product that's not out there, but with very little tweaks, you could kind of take your your brand that aligns with that product, you know, do the box, do the insert card, do the the label on it, make it yours and launch it on Amazon. I, I think that that strategy still works, certainly in, in the in products that do less in revenue because they're a little bit less competitive. But I think if you want to have longevity and when I say longevity, if you want that product to be fairly defendable for two to five years, which is really where you're going to need to be from a cash flow kind of net uh, contribution margin standpoint, You've got to be thoughtful about what's actually different. And and it doesn't need to be, again, rocket science. It could be subtle tweaks, but I think that you've got to make different enough products that align with who you're trying to sell for and and really understanding when somebody types in those keywords that matter for that product category and you look at what else is on there, how is the product that I'm developing going to stand out? Why is somebody going to click on it? Why is somebody ultimately going to buy it, especially if it's a slightly more higher price than what's else out there? And you've got to be more thoughtful in product development. So for me... Um, you know, what maybe used to take a couple months of, hey, I'm going to find 15 different suppliers for this thing. I'm going to order 15 samples. You know, within a month, I've got all those. I'll maybe tweak a couple things, get the box design, and then two months, you're ready to go to production. I think the product life cycle in terms of development is now probably more in that five to seven month range where you've got to be mm-hmm. a little bit more distinct about it. You might need to get some molds made. You might have three, four iterations of the product to get it right. You might have different material choices. You might layer in patent strategy to that. So I think pillar number one is is focusing more of your thoughtful energy on on product development. Because if you get that right, honestly, everything else is easier. You know, so rankings true. easier, pay per clicks easier, conversion yep. rates are easier. Like if you if you get that right, it makes things substantially easier. So I, I think that should be the the fundamental focus again with a very customer centric lens when you're developing that. I think the second thing is is really listing optimization and and it's a dynamic effort that occurs over time. Um, Historically, I think it's been an effective strategy to look at 50, 100, 200 keywords and really, you know, run really wide. I think the game for me has changed a lot more where there's probably going to be five to 15 keywords that really matter for most products that are Mm. really relevant, that are really going to convert, that you're really going to actually spend money on pay-per-click and that you're really going to rank on. And so being thoughtful about understanding which ones to include, which ones not to include, how that changes over time, how you're monitoring those keywords, what you're doing to drive incremental benefit to them. 
how you're backing in or backing off of pay-per-click spend on those. So I think like a very concentrated keyword strategy is important um, on the listing. Obviously imagery is a big thing too, making sure A-B testing stuff. So I think pillar number two is just that listing uh, optimization activity. And then I think the third is, is around traffic, right? Which is understanding what proportion of your sales are driven by organic and how can you get more of those? How much are you spending on pay-per-click and where? What's the best way to put your back into pay-per-click when you need to take a step back. And then are the, are, are there those arbitrage opportunities where, and this is where I think a lot of sellers can make uh, a lot of benefit for their businesses, which is how do I not rely on organic? How do I not rely on, on pay-per-click distinctly? And what can I do to drive my own traffic? That's much more cost effective than what's available on the Amazon platform. Uh, and that comes in the form of primarily, I would say Google uh, ads is the biggest one, but you've got YouTube ads in the mix now, some other paid spend, and then leveraging influencers and other strategies to kind of drive both the algorithm sales and organic rank using non-traditional Amazon strategies. Yeah, I love that. I, I love those kind of like three actionable takeaways you already laid out for people, right? Uh, you've got first, that product research and development, I think is so crucial. And I love what you talked about. If you can crush it in your product R&D, right, it makes launching the product, ranking the product, everything else so much easier because you've got a unique and dif- differentiated product. I think all too often, way too many sellers are still going back to the courses that were pitched back in 2020 or 2015, early 2010, right? And it was all about like just kind of creating a me too product, right? Just find something that's selling well and put your own brand name on it, right? And yeah. so I think like long gone are those days and you're really fighting an uphill battle if that's kind of like the way you're approaching your new product development right now. Um, I wanna dive into a little bit more of the nuts and bolts of these three strategies that you laid out for us, Adam. When it comes to product research and development, knowing that it is so important, are there any like software tools or like strategies that you've seen that you and your team have been able to implement to you know, come out with something that's genuinely unique. It allows you to file a utility patent or even a design patent and kind of make those moats bigger around your brand. Yeah, I think probably one of the more um, interesting ones, and this is again why when you focus on the customer and if you are the customer and you understand that niche pretty distinctively as, as a user of those products, I actually don't start most of my product research on Amazon. You know, I'm not typically using software uh, I'm not on there looking at, hey, what else could, it, what's frequently bought together, a lot of those other strategies that, that other folks use. And those certainly work. There's a lot of ways to, to splice this. But the strategy I like better is to basically think about, okay, I'm getting, uh, I wanted to build a, a business around kids' bikes. Okay. Well, what are all the things that kids are going to need when they get into biking? Okay. Well, they're going to start out on a balance bike. That's what they're going to start out on. Yeah. You know, about four years old, or they might even start on a, if they're one years old, they might start out on one of those four wheeler trikes. So that's really the starting point. Then they get into a balance bike. Then they're going to get into a small pedal bike and then they're going to graduate to another one in three, four years. They're going to need helmets. They might need lights. They might need tassels. Like for me, it just starts out with really reverse engineering the customer experience on what products they need when they're on their journey. And I did the same thing with my cycling brand. Then I start to think, okay, Let's use balance bikes as an example. Is there anything I could do interesting that could make it different? So I haven't even looked at Amazon at this point. Once Mm -hmm. I feel like I've got something, a lot of this is pulling on threads and some of them lead to nowhere. Some of them lead to something interesting and then they lead to nowhere. Some of them you keep on pulling the thread and you're like, okay, I think I've got something here. 
Then I'll go on Amazon and I'll think about, hey, what's the keyword that someone's going to type in? Again, it's not super brand centric in terms of, of keywords unless you've got an omnichannel brand. But what are the generic keywords that people are going to type in and then what's showing up on that page? And what you're typically going to see is, is some form of, I would say, far east sellers typically um, yeah. that are the, the lowest you know, price products that are going to be cascaded across that organic search. OK, well, how am I going to make mine interesting at? you know, 20, 30, 40, 50% the cost of that. And would somebody actually be compelled to buy? And then you're going to run into another layer of products that is branded players that again, sell in REI that sell in all these other places. And Amazon is one of their channels, but they do pretty well because people trust the business and they're willing to pay up for that. So I like that sweet spot in between those two, which is, I feel like I'm within uh, range of those ones that are the low cost providers, but I can use my brand, use my imagery, use those other things that matter from an emotional experience and a customer lens that can make them pay up. And that also has a, a, a feel and a vibe, even if they haven't heard of my brand, which they likely haven't if they're searching on Amazon, that <clears throat> engenders trust that a bigger brand would, but you're 20, 30% less the cost of those bigger brands. So I love that sweet spot in between those two things. And then it's just about running the math, right? Like, hey, can I actually make this thing work? Getting some, some rough sample costs um, from suppliers, running the math on, hey, do I have enough margin here given all the dynamics of Amazon to make this thing work? If it checks those boxes, then it's about, okay, well, how can I actually conceptualize this potential differentiation idea that I've got and, and bring that to life? Uh, so in the case of the balance bikes, you know, we, you know, most of them are rigid bikes. They're typically going to be kind of cheap aluminum. Um, I don't know about you. I don't have kids, but I wouldn't want to put my kid on a, you know, $50 um, bike from a brand I don't know of that's called Jingwa or whatever the name of it is. Like I, I, I'm, I'm willing to pay up. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> And I've heard of Strider bikes, which is, yeah. you know, one of the, the big players and that's what most people buy, but that's also a fairly boring design, even though I trust the brand and it's 120 bucks. So for us, yeah. it was like, okay, we can do a design differentiation. We can use new material choices. We can make the colors unique. We can make the thing look damn good and, and engender trust from a, from a, a brand that visually represents who I am as a consumer. So that's kind of the thought process. So for me, I, I like to start off of Amazon, just kind of reverse engineering the customer uh, purchase patterns, what they buy seeing if I can differentiate, then I'll go to Amazon, see if I can make the math work. Uh, and sometimes you get shut down at that point just because it just, there's too many reviews or there's just too much going on that it's, it's hard to justify or, or you don't have the budget to justify going after that. Um, and then really finding unique factories, I think is the other one. We, we spend quite a bit of time now and again, kind of focusing on a niche that you understand. You build up a Rolodex and a playbook over time of, of finding those suppliers mm. that are maybe off the beaten path a little bit that you can truly build a unique relationship with, that you can get unique terms and build unique products. Yeah, I think those are all really great insights. And I think just one thing to add on to that is, you know, you talked about having a Rolodex of manufacturers that you could reach out to, right? That's something that's built over time, right? And so it For may sure. be a product that you're initially looking at, right? And maybe it leads to nowhere first off, right? And maybe you run up to a dead end, but you've reached out to a few factories, right? And, and you now have some contacts, right? You never know if those contacts or those experiences will actually come to play out in your benefit down the road. And so yeah. it all goes back to that. You know, we talk about like f seeing failures, so to speak, as stepping stones to success. And I feel like for product research and development, I think that statement is even more true because you should be experimenting with a lot. You should be trying out a lot. You should be surveying, talking to customers and trying to get to the heart of really what you talked about, Adam, is like, how can you serve the customer better? Right. Like at the end of the day, business is very simple. 
if you just approach it from the frame or from the mindset of, look, I'm trying to serve somebody, right? Yep. And have that somebody in mind. And then whether maybe you go interview those type of people. And so yep. I love everything that you talked about. Did you ever survey, you know, parents with young kids? Yeah, 100%. So, um, you know, obviously a, a one to three year old kid's not buying the bike uh, unless they're sophisticated and, and somehow know how to use a credit card at that age, which is highly <laughs> unlikely. So it's going to be the parents, right? It's going to be the mom or the dad or the grandparents kind of gifting it to them. So um, and then we kind of started to to understand who purchases this. And obviously all three of those different segments buy buy bikes for kids, but it tends to actually be the mom, surprisingly enough, that purchases the product. And uh, most of the time, that doesn't mean that a dad's not or a grandparent's not. So you got to have you know a wide enough net that captures yeah. their attention. But our focus in terms of understanding the pain points uh, was moms. And so we had kind of a, what we called a Lululemon mom avatar, which is somebody that's, you know, in that 30 to 38 year old range um, that, you know, has a busy life, still likes to be cool themselves, probably takes their kids to the park, follows a bunch of other moms on Instagram. There's a bit of narcissism mixed in there, which is like, you know, their friends are, are looking and judging them. They're looking yeah. and judging their friends. I mean, just getting into the psychology, it's real. But so we, we reached out and had a number of conversations with folks to say, hey, here's the name of the brand. Here's some logo options. We started there with brand identity. But then as we started to hone in on the on the product concept, I wanted to understand what are the psychological hot buttons to press to make them convert? And I think that that comes from either pain or pleasure, right? They either want an ego stroked, which again gets into some human psychology that's not necessarily talked about, but it's, it's, it's true. And where there's pain points and fears, right? And so obviously kind of starting off with the fears, people, you know, that have a two-year-old kid want the bike to be safe. So you've got to engender trust with the quality of the, of the product that you're making. But then there got to be like, you know, one of the things that, and again, these are words that are coming from our customer avatar in those conversations where it's like, you know, I take, you know, my three kids to the park and my youngest, I'm carrying their bike and they'll ride it for five minutes, but then inevitably they're going to get bored. They're not going to ride the thing for the all yeah. two hours. So they end up holding, like taking it. And, and when you got a stroller and you've got two other kids and knapsacks and whatever else. So we were like, okay, that's a hot button, right? Like carrying a bike, how do you make that more seamless? So we have the shoulder strap, we had it more compact that you can actually tuck it underneath the stroller uh, and really playing in that, like, you know, the, the voice of the customer, like, you know, your kid's not going to ride this thing for the whole time. What do you do next? So like those kind of hot mm. buttons matter. Right. Um, and then really kind of tying into, even though it's ultimately the kid that's riding the bike, we all had an emotional experience growing up. We can, most of us remember the first time we rode a bike. And for most people, that's the first time they felt freedom, independence, all those emotions that I described with my own experience. Yeah. So how do you tap into that? And, and another fear that came out in our conversations was that people have to parent using screens. They don't want to, but that's mm -hmm. the world that we live in. It's kind of like give a kid an iPad and that distracts them for a little bit. I'm busy. I got my own stuff going on. Maybe I'm looking at my own phone. And so how do we change that dynamic such that kids want to go outside and ride their bike versus being on a screen? And then that is a healthier experience for the kid, but it's also a good thing for the ego of the parent. They feel like they're raising their kids in a way that they were raised. And so again, this has nothing to do with bikes, right? This has to do with the human experience, the struggles that we have as human beings, the egos that we have, the fears that we have, the things that we want to do and be fulfilled uh, as individuals and, or in this case, parents. And so, um, so yeah, very much, I think it's, it's important to psychologically understand who your customers are, why they make the decisions they make as human beings, and then how does that relate to their product purchasing decisions for what you're actually building? Yeah, I love that. I love how much time you spent with those customers. You obviously intimately know who that end user is, right? You know their their fears, you know their aspirations. Um, so I, I love that you 
did that much research. And I think that's what's going to set you and your brand apart. Um, so I, I hope our audience takes notes from that. So let's dive into number two here, which is product optimization. You you talked a lot about that. And I'm kind of curious from your experience, uh, maybe with your current brand that you have as well, like what are the tools that you're using to a track keywords or how do you identify which are the five to 15 keywords that you really want to hone in on for PPC that, you know, give you the biggest return uh, for your effort. So how do you know kind of where to focus in terms of keyword optimization and PPC optimization? Yeah, so I think one of the strategies that we use, and luckily, you know, Amazon, uh, hat tip to them, I, I know sometimes they can be our worst enemy and our best friend, but um, they've come up with a, a lot of really insightful data that has really made that easier and made it real for folks. But um, there's frankly not a, a ton of great software in terms of the incremental keyword tracking. I mean, there's there's some feature sets out there, but I have yet to find one that truly captures what we want to do. So we um, we use a tool that I kind of uh, basically gave uh, a good buddy of mine, Brett Burkaw, who's amazing with Google Sheets, and, and he's kind of a tech nerd and, and does a lot of the heavy lifting on making things simple, but within Google Sheets. And so we use a tool mm-hmm. that uh, kind of co-built with him called Metrics. It's M-E-T-R-I-X. It's FBAXL.io, I think is the name of his site. But what we basically do is, is we've got a daily tracker with all the metrics that matter from organic impressions to clicks to conversions. Same thing for pay-per-click. And then we typically take 20 of the keywords that we believe matter at any given time. And we basically track those on a daily basis. So we know how many impressions, how many sales, how much profit, what pay-per-click mm-hmm. was. And then we know the, the the rank tracking on a daily basis across those 20 keywords. And I think that you do have to look at things in aggregate um, over a period of time. And I think daily is the best way to do that. And so one distinct strategy is is we track stuff every day. Um, It's not a simple way to do it, but we've made it, I would call it semi-automated. I like Google Sheets too, because you can kind of chop some data up and do some more customizable things that software tends not to enable you to do. Mm. And then what we really do is, is like, you know, I I, I don't do that. I don't look at it daily, even though we track it daily, but I'll typically go in you know, I get daily and weekly reports on my business uh, in my email too. And if I see something trending down, okay, it's 20% down, we, you know, this week versus the previous week or, or this week, same period last year, what's going on there? Okay, yeah. well, impressions are down or sessions are down. Okay, well, why are sessions down? Or maybe sessions are the same or up, but conversions down. Um, why is that? And then that's when those additional layers of looking at that keyword centric ranking data helps to kind of paint a picture to diagnose those things. Sometimes it has nothing to do with the keywords. Sometimes it's, you know, your competitor got a badge or they price differently or you price differently or there was some seasonal spike that happened, et cetera. Um, but what that tr- the, the keyword tracking in aggregate over time enables you to do is paint a picture of where you're gaining or losing ground. Yeah. Um, and what are the keywords that matter? Which ones do you want to defend? Which ones do you want to improve upon? Which ones are you actually comfortable letting go? And so we have basically monthly strategies uh, on, on keywords. So as an example, uh, one of the things I like to do is, uh, which is a little bit counterintuitive for a lot of folks, but if we're actually doing well on a keyword, call it top three positions, I like to try backing off and just say, okay, we've achieved mm-hmm. this. We've been running steady state one, two or three spots for the last month, two months, whatever. And again, you can see that with daily tracking. What would happen if we didn't spend money on that keyword on pay-per-click? Let's just take a knee for three weeks and see what happens. Do I maintain that organic rank or do I lose it? Sometimes you'll lose it and you got to turn that back on and back to the drawing board. Sometimes though, you'll find, hey, I can actually either shut off or significantly reduce spend because I've got organic position and I can use that money either to bank it in profits or I can use it to experiment with graduating other keywords. 
Mm. The other thing that we like to do is if a keyword is outside of those top five spots, especially if it was in top five previously, we'll do uh, like, okay, for this month, we're going to turn on Google ads. We're going to actually put our backs in, beef up the budget on a single keyword campaign for that word and check back in a month and see what happens with that keyword over time. And can I get it bumped back into that top five spot? And then I would say that there's these these other keywords that emerge that either are new and or new brands or, or just ones that didn't initially catch your purview maybe a year and a half ago when you started analyzing the product that you're not paying attention to at all. And uncovering those hidden gems, those new keywords that you hadn't thought of and how do you graduate those into the mix uh, and, and build those out. So, so for me, it starts with daily tracking. And then I think there's distinct strategies based on how you're ranked for those specific keywords that you can implement to either optimize your profits and or optimize your organic rank. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. Tell me more, a little bit more, if you are outside the top five, right? Let's say you previously were, you started to slip. Um, tell me more about those strategies that you employ. You said you'll tur- you'll light up your PPC exact, you know, match campaign, right? And then you're also turning on a Google ads campaign. I would assume that with Google ads, Amazon doesn't see what keywords are coming from Google, right? So it's just more of a generic Google you know, campaign, obviously with multiple keywords. Is that correct? Is there, are there any other things that you're using to try to regain ranking when you've lost it? Yeah, it's fairly simple. I, I mean, first of all, I, I guess even going back a step is, is, is how is that keyword optimized in your listing? And is it significant enough that you want to introduce that to a different layer of your listing or maybe add it mm-hmm. if it doesn't even exist? So maybe it's in a bullet. What happens if I bump it to the title? And again, this is where you've got to look at ones that maybe, hey, I'm just not ever going to convert on this word and you drop those off the title. There's things like that that happen. But one might be, hey, where is this keyword in my listing as it resides today? Can I bump it into what's potentially more significantly algorithmically beneficial spot? Um, so yeah. that's kind of step number one. Step number two, though, is fairly simple, right? It's like, okay, this is you know, what we're spending on the keyword. And I love single keyword campaigns for the most part. I think one of the things with focusing on a more finite list of words, which I do believe is the new Amazon, that doesn't mean that we don't target a lot of other ones and have other strategies, but you know, we're typically running 15 to 20 campaigns that, that matter. So you've got a single campaign and that gives you a lot of incremental benefit that you can play with top of search percentage. You can play with your bids. You can play with your overall budget amount. I mean, it starts with budget, right? If I'm capping out the budget yep. and the economics are clean, then just beef up the budget and, and spend more money. You're going to get more impressions, more sales. Uh, or maybe it's a conversion issue. Well, why is it not converting well with that word? Can I do something with my image or my bullets that helps convert for that specific search term? And is it worth me editing my listing to do that? Um, maybe you play with price. There's other things that you do at the, at the keyword level. So so some of that analysis comes into play, but really it's just coming down to changing your bids, percentage of, uh, of placement and or your overall budget. Uh, in terms of Google, there is, uh, and actually don't, uh, I, I might misspeak here, but I believe that there are some threads that carry through from Google ads. We've started to use uh, a tool by Carbon6 uh, for this called Pixel Me mm-hmm. uh, that helps automate things, sets up attribution on the back end, et cetera. Uh, and what we will do is we'll actually set up single keyword campaigns on Google as well. And I believe that there is some data that carries through uh, from Google ads to uh, to Amazon on that. So I believe that there actually is some benefit um, okay. from that standpoint. but. Um, but that's it, man. It's, it's fairly basic stuff. It, again, it's not rocket science, but I think the biggest thing is, is most people aren't paying attention at that level. They're not paying attention to what's slipping, what's not, and they're not willing to A, B test and Hey, for this next thir- and we do this for all our products, right? Okay. So for this 30 day cycle, we're going to do this with these three, three keywords and this with these three keywords. Okay. 
Mm. Here's where we are now. Here's where we've been, team. You guys go deploy it. I'm going to check back in a month. We're going to review the analysis and see what happened. I, I think that experimentation, that curiosity, that that tweaking, and it, it, these are subtle tweaks. They don't take a lot of time. They don't take a lot of thought. But constantly tweaking, that's where you make you know a 2% gain here, 3% gain there, et cetera. But if you're doing that every month for every single product, you carry that out over an annual period, and you've got orders of magnitude more optimization than than most people have in, in their business. Yeah. I love that. Well, it sounds like you definitely have a full team that's helping you execute on these strategies. Tell me more about, you know, what your team looks like. Do you have kind of like a maybe call it a brand manager or a product manager that is overseeing those daily metrics and coming up with those strategies then? Yeah. And again, this kind of goes back to a philosophical question. And I think that a lot of people chase growth for growth's sake. And and a lot of this is ego too. And I felt that a lot in my life, right? Okay, well, shit, I've built a seven figure business. Now I got to build an eight one. Then people that do an eight figure, (laughs) well, how do I get to 50 million? Then it's like, you're kind of on this hedonic treadmill and you got to step back and ask yourself why. And I've done a lot of soul searching on this because why I got out of corporate was I had seven plus hours of meetings a day. Uh, I had to drive 45 minutes to work to and from. I had, you know, at my peak, probably 40 employees and a lot and probably seven direct uh, reports that I had one on ones with every single week. Mm. And while that was certainly fulfilling in one respect, because you get to see other people flourish and get fulfillment in their careers. And there's a lot of joy that comes with that leadership. I wasn't happy doing that. And, you know, I got into this because I wanted time freedom. I wanted to be able to ride my bike and ski and build businesses I thought were cool. But there is a point where you've got to ask yourself, how big do you want to get and why do you want to get that big? And so for me, once my again, once my personal needs were met, I'm like, I would much rather have a smaller, simpler structure that makes me happy and makes me doing things that the majority of the time I want to do. And for me, that complexity, that additional employee base I've seen in my life just derive less happiness as much as I've gotten fulfillment mm-hmm. from from the leadership side. So we've got a pretty simple team. I mean, I've got um, somebody that focuses more on the operations side, somebody that mo- focuses more on the traffic side. Um, I've got kind of a, a manager that helps oversee a lot of the, the day-to-day leadership and stuff. So I can kind of do more diving in and diving out. We've structured a lot of automations with the data reports and systems such that I can come in and see something in five minutes on a daily email, make decisions and, and off to the races versus having to dig into each component myself. And then we've basically strategically used a lot of vendors that make sense. So all of our creative stuff, uh, we, we outsource. Um, there's a lot of other, other things that we outsource as well. So I would say on the, on the one, the, the two main uh, pillars of the business uh, that involve employees, one is going to be, I would call it traffic, which is people that are focused on, they're running that daily report on ranking. They're running okay. analysis on where our competitors are with keywords. So they're really focused on what's happening with our sessions, conversions, traffic. They're running all of our pay-per-click campaigns. They're doing the external stuff influencer strategy, all the reach up that we do uh, across four or five different areas off of Amazon. And then I've got um, another pillar that's much more ops driven, which is customer, starting with customer support, making sure that we've got mechanisms in that review management. We've got a lot of specific strategies on curtailing negative reviews and instigating new ones and metrics around that. Mm. Uh, the biggest one in operations, frankly, that a lot of people don't pay atten- a lot of attention to, but there's probably more money there than there is in pay-per-click, uh, which is demand planning. So um, yeah. having, having really thoughtful demand planning processes, where's my inventory. You want to have the right amount without burning cash flow, but, uh, you know, not, not uh, but not too much, uh, where you've got, you know, some, some issues going on. So really thoughtful about demand planning. Where's our product? When do I need to reorder? Where is it in warehouses? What's the most efficient way to get it into different warehouses? Uh, so that ops piece is kind of another pillar. And then we basically supplement creative and, and a lot of those other things using vendors. And then where I step into the business is much more in terms of, 
I'm kind of the canary in the coal mine. So I'm looking at that data that we've constructed that I see daily, weekly, monthly and making decisions based on that. I'm making decisions based on the bookkeeping that gets done by, by a third party. And that's where I'm like, okay, hey, let's try this. Let's try this. I'm seeing this. Why is this happening? I'm asking the questions. I'm probing. I'm instigating the tests mm-hmm. that we want to do. I'm instigating the projects, the activities. And then I'm also thinking more philosophically about product development and growth. Um, and so that's a lot around what are the new products we're going to launch. Uh, a lot of our strategies the last couple of years has been international expansion and or expansion into other channels. So I play that role. Number one, I enjoy that stuff. That's where I actually, it doesn't feel like work to me. So I'm trying to work, orchestrate my workflow such that I enjoy 90% of what I do. And then keeping the business and the team structure in terms of both systems and number of employees such that I'm good with this. You know, I'm making yeah. enough money. I'm able to travel in Europe for five weeks with looking at my computer once every couple of days. I just got back from a month in Vancouver. I'm doing what I want to do as a human being and I'm getting fulfillment out of my business. And it's generating enough money that my team is fulfilled and happy and, and making their, their lives enriched. I'm building something that I'm proud of. I'm able to share it with others and help impart that wisdom. Like that to me is a sweet spot. And like, I feel like when you focus on that fulfillment focus, the money comes, the performance comes and it will right size you for the things that you want in your life. And so, yeah, in a long winded way, that's the team structure and kind of philosophy around how I build businesses now. Yeah, I absolutely love that. Um, I, I love that you went back to like that philosophical question. It's like, well, what do you want? Right. Do you want to try to build this next, you know, corporate behemoth? Right. That we're going to 100 million and and more. Or is it like, look, I, I don't need a that much money. And B, I really don't want to have to build out the team yeah. that would be required in order to get to you know that level. And so. I think everything that you just shared, I I think there's a lot of golden nuggets in there. Adam, as we start to wrap things up, I want to touch on this last and final thing, traffic. Um, You've been talking a lot about, um, you know, some of the influencer partnerships or kind of like creating a framework around how you can go and approach these influencers to, you know, become brand ambassadors and things for you. So I'm interested to hear your thoughts in terms of like, what strategies are you implementing right now to reach out to influencers to get them on your team to become brand ambassadors and things like that. Tell me more about what you've been doing on the influencer space. Yeah, for sure. And I'll, I'll kind of, I'll, I'll maybe uh, caveat this with, this is a playbook that I've yet to fully crack, especially on the more traditional influencer side of Instagram and TikTok. So that's the one that we're really trying to get more sophistication around with radio, but uh, there's certainly some strategies there I can speak to as well as some other ones that we've definitely dialed in over the years that, that are a little bit more, um, off the beaten path. So I guess starting there, one of the things that, that I've liked to do is, is yes, Amazon is the largest product search engine in the world. Yes. That's where most people start and finish their product purchasing decisions. But a lot of people still go to YouTube and a lot of people go to Google. And so if you go in and you type in your product category into Google, undoubtedly, after you get through the the typical ads that you would typically see on Amazon, Google's got those two, obviously you're going to see top 10 balance bikes for kids. You're going to see all these articles from CNET to less uh, known sites that have captured organic rank uh, on Google for those search terms where people are actively making a purchase decision based on research. So a couple of years ago, I'm like, well, how do we get into this? So one of the strategies that we deploy um, is it depends on how, on where the product is in this life cycle. If it's a new product, certainly the first six months, we reach out to you know two to five of those a day. So we'll reach out to these folks that have sites, be like, hey, notice you've got your top five balance bikes for kids. Uh, just wanted to let you know we're this US-based brand. We've got a thousand reviews on Amazon. My product obviously doesn't yet, but if that's the case for yours, we've got a thousand reviews on Amazon. 
it converts well. Here's where it is. It's one of the top performers. I notice that you're linking off to these other products. What is it going to take for us to get in the mix? And those are pretty easy conversations because you can help incent them with additional commissions that they don't see because typically they're going to get paid about 2 to 3% from Amazon affiliate yeah. program. So you can beef up those commissions. What I love about that strategy, unlike um, Instagram, all this like egos aren't there. Like, you know, your narcissistic uh, <laughs> Instagram influencers like, well, pay me $10,000 and all the, and it, you know, like they're, they're much more demanding. These yeah. folks oftentimes don't even need the product, right? Um, yeah. They're literally like, okay, yeah, this is a cool product. I'm going to make more money from it. I'm going to plug you into one of those slots. We'll see how it goes. So I think that active outreach for organic search results and lists is something that I don't hear a lot of people do or talk about. That's one of our, our things that we, we do. And, and literally, it's just a numbers game, right? Yeah. Having a, a, a discrete task list for somebody in our team that on a daily basis is identifying and reaching out to those sites. The other one that I really, really like um, is YouTube. So again, a lot of people are going to start their decisions on YouTube. How to teach a, ride, a, a kid to ride a balance bike. Um, top bikes for kids. Strider bikes, whatever it is, you can, you can kind of get the idea. And, and again, once you pull on those threads, you'll get a 30 other ideas that you can use. Um, so we'll basically reach out to those YouTubers. And, and one, one avenue is, is, is um, getting your existing video, getting their existing video plugged in with. So say they did a, a bike, uh, a video that has 30,000 uh, views and gets 800 views a week. How do we get our link in there? And what can we do to incent that creator? Uh, a more likely approach though is, hey, we loved your video on this. Would love to see how we can work together to get a new one created. Mm. So those are typically pay to play. So you're gonna have to pay some amount of money there. Uh, you're gonna have to send free products. So that's an element of it. But you get a couple of things. You get this evergreen source that may live on YouTube for six years. That's gonna steadily give you clicks and views. Yeah. And, and those signals alone, even if somebody doesn't buy, are gonna be beneficial for your listing. But ultimately, people are gonna buy. And then you've also got content. So you can chop that up. You can use it in your ads on. Um, on pay-per-click, you can use it in your listing. You can add those as videos and resources in Amazon posts. Like you, you have this kind of 360 tangible asset. So I think YouTube uh, is probably my favorite just because of the evergreen component. You know, Instagram, TikTok, you basically are flashing the pan for 24 hours, likely yep. less than that. And you've got a similar cost structure, whereas YouTube doesn't have that. So that's one strategy. And again, if you go to the about page on on these um on these channels and you go down to the bottom and go to view email address, you can basically see the email. That's how we reach out to them. They limit you to, I think five a day. So similar strategy. Okay. Mm. For these products for the net, for the next three months, person X on the team, I want you to spend 20 minutes finding, identifying and emailing these folks. Here's the script. And then they run that program for you. Right. Um, so those are what, those are playbooks that we've instituted that are, are regular parts. Now the, the, the nuanced ways is this new form, which is, is more Instagram, TikTok, which is more traditional influencers. And this is where I've been a little bit more thoughtful. Frankly, it's not something that I really care about or love to think about. Um, although it's a necessary evil, much like Amazon pay-per-click. I don't really care about it. I'm not <laughs> curious about it, but it's something that you need to do. So one of the, the we basically gave a small amount of equity in this new business to somebody who knows that world well. They have a mm -hmm. kids inflatable tent business that has, I think, something like 100,000 uh, followers on Instagram. Their playbook exclusively to grow that business is to work with, with influencers. So I'm like, hey, I'm going to give up a piece of my business because I feel like there's going to be a substantial magnitude of value for them to test their playbook as well as their existing Rolodex on this business that's very relevant to what they do today. Plus, it's something I don't overall enjoy doing. So they're executing. So I think you might also look at hey, who's somebody who knows influencer marketing. Is there an actual influencer themselves that I can be a bit more thoughtful and strategic about to bring them into the business? So that's one of the things that, that we've done and instituted. Now, the one that is, is to be determined is this playbook of, of regular outreach. What is the cost structure that makes sense? 
you know, free product, what's the the size yeah. of, of influencers. So we're starting to see that play out. We're starting to play a, a lot with um, and will with TikTok spark ads. So if you find somebody that posts something on TikTok, you can actually get a, a little script of code and you can run your own ads on that actual video that has a link off to Amazon. So that's, that's one cool. of the strategies uh, and approaches. And then I think the final one, again, a kind of uh, hat tip to my buddy, Brett Burko, who's built out a lot of cool tools that we've integrated in our own business. He's got a, a site called, I think it's amzrolodex.io, I believe, but he's basically uh, scraped and analyzed the 8,000 Amazon affiliate storefronts that exist. Uh, on Amazon. These are people that actively promote products on Amazon. Some of them do Amazon lives, et cetera. He's got those spliced up by category. So we've also started to test that out, which is they're posting stuff on Amazon. That video shows up on your feed, your competitors feeds, and you get clicks on it and you have additional content that you can chop up. So we're starting to test that strategy out using kind of on-site Amazon uh, storefronts and affiliates as well. So, man, I love that. Adam, this has been a wealth of information that you've shared. You've dug into a lot of different rabbit holes today. And I appreciate you, you know, really getting into the nuts and bolts of everything. And that's kind of the purpose of the podcast, right, is sharing the actionable strategies. And so as we kind of wrap things up here today, Adam, I love to leave the audience with three actionable takeaways from each episode. Here are the three takeaways that I noted, Adam. Let me know if you think I'm missing something. Number one, it's going back to the list that you just shared, which is start first with product development. Your product research and development is your biggest lever that you can pull on Amazon. And so if you're the CEO of the business, if you're the founder, like that is where you should spend the majority of your time thinking of and coming up with ways to better serve the audience that you're targeting, right? And so whether that is an influencer, mommy blogger, right, type of avatar, or whether it's, you know, an older person, Whoever your avatar is, get to know them, get to know them well. Adam talked about the surveys that he had done and you heard how well he knew his end user. That is how well you need to know your end user in order to have success on Amazon and really just in general in the e-commerce space for years to come. So that's action item number one. Action item number two is getting into the basics of Amazon of listing optimization. And there's a lot that goes into it, but How often are you A-B testing your main image, right? That is your greatest driver of click-through rate on Amazon. How often are you actually testing your price, moving the price up to see if it can grow your profit, moving the price down to see if you can grow profit by increasing the number of orders that you're getting? And then in addition, like, what do your images look like? And what are your PPC strategies? And really, your PPC strategies need to layer in with all the optimization strategies that you were doing. And Adam talked about doing like one optimization per month. It's like you, you work on one thing, one month, see what happens with that lever that you just pulled and then start creating that, I guess your own Rolodex or library of tests that you've implemented. And you're going to look back a year from now and be able to say, Oh, I'm, I'm finding a pattern when I change the title or when I change the main image, these things typically shoot my listing back up to the top. So that's, Action item number two, actually implement those optimization tactics that you've heard number of a number of times. Final action item number three is driving external traffic. And this is, I think, what is going to set apart the e-commerce, uh, I guess, success stories five years from now. I think that Amazon is going to, we've already seen that on page number one, 50 to 60% 
of the ad spots on page one are all ads, right? And so you've only got maybe 40% of the page for organic listings. So who's going to win on Amazon and e-commerce in general in the long term? It's those people that know how to build an audience and create a raving fan base and that can then direct that traffic to your listings, whether you're trying to offer it on Shopify or Walmart or Amazon. If you can gather the eyeballs and then direct that traffic, that is what's going to set you apart in the future. Adam, is there anything else that you think I missed that uh, we should give as a takeaway from this podcast? No, man, I think you uh, you honed it in. Well, I do a lot of talking and not a lot of thinking, so I'm glad that you're taking notes and uh, and remembering all this that we talked about. But yeah, it was a fun combo, man. Great, great uh, job leading it. Awesome. Well, I've got a page full of notes. That's that's for darn sure. <laughs> now, Adam, I like to ask each guest the three following questions to wrap things up here. So question number one, and I didn't prepare you with these. So here we go <laughs> off the cuff. What's been the most influential book that you've read and why? Uh, that's interesting. And maybe this is a bit of recency bias because <clears throat> it's one that had a really big impact on me this year. Uh, it's a book uh, by Michael Singer called The Untethered Soul. Mm. Um, again, as I've gotten a lot more into philosophically better understanding my life um, and business is, is really a spiritual vehicle. It's a self-discovery vehicle as much as it is a business thing. And I've come to learn and understand that. And how do I approach my life across all facets, including business that that matter? And so Untethered Soul is just really good. It, it basically helps you realize that you're probably not the person you think you are. So, you know, yeah, my name's Adam. I grew up in Canada, moved to Texas, was in corporate, did acquisitions that led me to physical products. Now I do YouTube. You know, I mountain bike, all those, those are things I do. They're not who I am as a human being. Um, also the thoughts that you have on a daily basis, you know, we've all got this voice in our head, oftentimes replaying a similar script over and over and over. Oftentimes it's not a kind voice. That's not who you are either. So like more deeply peeling those layers back to understand who you really are, what you care about, what matters to you. So other untethered soul has been one of the most profound uh, impacts in, in terms of a book and uh, helping me understand who I am and what I care about. I love that. Getting down to the root of like, do you know who you truly are deep down inside? I think that's yeah. an important thing that everybody needs to do some soul searching on. Question number two for you, Adam. What has been your favorite maybe new productivity tool or software tool that you've been using or maybe recently discovered that you think is going to be a game changer? Yeah, I've, I've played a lot with this uh, in terms of trying to optimize my life and frankly build some discipline into my life. I think that's one of the things that can kind of, you know, when you're your own boss, you call your own shots. You can also uh, get lazy and undisciplined. And I've certainly had to kind of, re you know, rein that in over the years. But the biggest thing that seems to work really well, and it's not software and it's it, it's not any kind of tech based thing, but it's just a, a new philosophy that I hold myself to, which is the three things. Um, so. I've made a deal with myself and you've got to make this deal with yourself because uh, you're the one that's ultimately going to hold you accountable, not some software reminder, which is I need to do three things in my businesses every single day that are high leverage in that matter. That doesn't mean that I'm not going to check an email. I'm not going to sign an invoice, like all the other stuff that you got to kind of keep the ship running. Those things need to happen too. But if I do three things that matter right now in my business that are high leverage and that that one thing is going to have a cascade of benefits either for my team and or for my business for weeks uh, months, years to come. If I do three of those in a year, that's, you know, north of a thousand things that moves mountains. So for me, it's like every day I made a commitment to myself that I don't have a time around it. I don't have a thing on my Google calendar. I don't have a timer that reminds me. I don't have an app checklist. It's just like the morning I sit down and I think about what are the three things that would really matter today? And I make sure that I do those by the end of the, by the time I go to sleep. And then I do that the next day and I do that the next day. 
it's tangible. It's not overwhelming because most people can do three things. Uh, and it's simple too. And it doesn't have the same constraints of like, Oh, I got to do this by 9am and I'm doing this by 10am. Um, so yeah, the, the three things that's been the, the biggest, biggest, uh, benefit productivity wise for me. Yeah. I think it's simple yet. So powerful. Um, I think so many people can get caught up and just like, well, I cleared out my email inbox today. Right. And it's like, well, did you actually move the needle? Yeah. I'm curious, Adam, like just off the top of your head, do you have any ideas as to like, Typically, what do you find those top three, you know, value lever like tasks being in your business? Is it making phone calls or is it like creating partnerships? What do you typically end up seeing those three become each day? Yeah, well, I think like the first of all, I've tried to shed the things I don't enjoy doing, even though those may be important. I think that, again, I think doing stuff that for the most part you care about and that that feel good and that you're excited to do, it's a lot easier to do those things. And if you match that with them being highly productive and those being high leverage, that matters. So I've, I've had to construct that as a starting point. Um, I think that the, one of the things that, that I'll do is, is I'll look at the, I'll analyze the business on where it's at, whether it's that day, that week, that month. And I'll just think about, Hey, what, what do we want to test and do this month? And, and kind of coming through the data, having that intellectual curiosity to follow those threads and be like, okay, I think that this might be something that's interesting and I'll develop a concept around that and then maybe pass on the team or execute it myself. So mm. I think that's one starting point. Um, I think the other one is around the sessions and conversion of the business. You know, if you can impact a conversion rate, let's say your conversion rate is 18% and you get it to 20%. So it's a 2% uplift. Yeah. If you run that math out over the number of sessions that you get over a year, that 2% lift could be worth $90,000, which if you sell your business times 4X, you do the math on that pretty quick. It's a pretty substantial thing. So yep. a lot of my uh, you know, thought now is around conversion rate and how do I really optimize for that and make sure that the listings are optimized. So that's probably another area that tends to gravitate towards the top. Um, and then the other thing is, is, is frankly, non-Amazon specific. It's, it's what I'm doing with YouTube. It's what I'm doing with the course business. Um, affiliate stuff. There's other, other business projects outside of the Amazon sphere that I I'm involved in and really care about and get fulfillment out of. So I just think about, Hey, what do I want to, you know, where's my intellectual curiosity taking me? What's a task that could really amplify that. And, and so I'll usually have like a non Amazon component. That's one of the top three. Love that. Thanks. Thanks for letting me, uh, probe down and a little bit, <laughs> learn a little bit more about the way you think. All right, Adam, last question here. Who is somebody that you admire or respect the most in the e-commerce space that you would recommend other sellers should be following and why? Yeah, it's a good question. And frankly, I've tried to manage my attention a lot more effectively. So I've, I've done a little bit less of that than I would have maybe two years ago, but I've actually got a ton of value from LinkedIn, honestly. Like I've kind of lessened my focus on YouTube in, in terms of Amazon e-com specific stuff, uh, just because there is quite a bit of noise there. Um, but there tends to be some pretty profound, especially technical elements that, that are deployed on LinkedIn. Um, a guy I love just cause he's just crazy smart, uh, and really thoughtful is, is John Durkitz, um, worked at Amazon, worked at an aggregator now builds in his own business is just really, really thoughtful, intellectual, insightful stuff. Uh, I would say I'll, I'll throw a couple more in just cause I know you asked for one, but a couple that have impacted me, um, is Joe Shellerud from ad advance, just this, the amount of data info he shares on pay-per-click strategies is just awesome. So uh, follow him. And then uh, Mansur Nazari is another guy that really keeps a pulse on all the Amazon tools. You know, the search query reports, how do you use it? How do you leverage those things that Amazon's coming out with? I've uh, seen a ton of nuggets from, seen a ton of nuggets from him. So I throw those three on the mix and don't sleep on LinkedIn because there's a lot of value being dropped there. That's awesome. Adam, thank you so much for your time today. Before we depart, uh, where can people follow you and learn more about you? 
Yeah. Uh, again, my, my pseudonym on YouTube, uh, I was, I d- deployed my uh, YouTube channel when I was still in corporate. So I was like, I don't want to use my real name necessarily, but you can search Adam Heist on YouTube. You'll find me there. Uh, usually drop a, a video a week ranging from interviews like this to uh, deep dive master classes, strategic stuff to just thoughts of the day. And then if you want to connect with me personally, send me a message, et cetera. Uh, just Adam Runquist on LinkedIn. You'll find me there. Awesome. Adam, thanks so much for your time. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Dude, it was a pleasure. Thank you for listening. Visit ecombreakthrough.com for more information. If you've enjoyed today's episode, the best way you can show your appreciation is by clicking the subscribe button and quickly leaving a review. See you again next time.